first of many podcasts from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, South Australia branch. My name is Christopher Bremner MacDonald, and I am the co-vice president of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, South Australia branch. We bring you a recording of the recent Anti-Poverty Week talk on the changing face of poverty. The speaker, the Reverend Dr Lynn Arnold. Dr Arnold is well placed to discuss his thoughts on the topic, spending much of his working life in assisting the more vulnerable in our community. His work includes being the 40th Premier of South Australia, CEO of World Vision, to working with Anglicare SA and is now an ordained priest in the Anglican Church. He works tirelessly to promote the needs of the vulnerable and seeing an alleviation of poverty both locally and globally. We hope you enjoy this, the first of many podcasts from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, South Australia branch. Welcome and thank you all for coming today. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on Ghana land, the land of our First Nations people. We acknowledge their connection to the to country. We would like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future. My name is Christopher Bremner MacDonald. I am the co-vice president of the Australian Institute for International Affairs, South Australia. And I'm filling in for the president, Felix Petrakaev, who is away at the moment at the National Conference. Now, uh, the Honourable Reverend Dr Lynn Arnold, it's a very long title, AO, uh, former Premier of South Australia, he has gained a PhD of, in social logistics. Social linguistics. Linguistics, sorry. So I'm very dyslexic, you have to forgive me. I do make mistakes occasionally. Um, from the University of Adelaide in 2003. Throughout his career, he has been the chief executive of World Vision Australia and the regional vice president of World Vision International, chief executive of Anglicare, and was ordained as a priest in 2014. It is my honour to invite Lynn to talk uh, on the changing face of poverty, of poverty. This week, uh, it was noted that more than three million people live in poverty in Australia. The face of poverty is changing according to recent research to include those who would normally expect to, uh, not, sorry, normally not to expect to fit the label. This event is, is to remind, sorry, this event is to remember Anti-Poverty Week and to remember the reasons of poverty and to work towards availing it. Our speaker is the former chair of the Anti-Poverty Week Committee, uh, uh, so is well placed to discuss this fantastic topic. So on behalf of, of all the members and guests, I would like to thank... Uh, I've, I've written Dr Arnold, you see, so I have to, I've been told not to say that. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's my pleasure to invite Lynn to talk. Mm. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Christopher. The uh, Nainamane, Nadalu Tampendi, Ganama Yuna, Yuta Matanya, Wamatara Nyako, Ganama Yonako, Diyatako, Taikawinga, Tawila, Panako Tapa Puruna, Bulcha, Yalchakuma, Nadlu, Panadlu Wadlu, Terlatina, Mankori Adlu. Nadlu Tampendi, Ramanjeri, Naranjeri, Anangu, Adnamatna, Naranga, Bangala. Mayunakuma La Yalara, Mani Nabudni, Yainchen Barendi, Ghana Yatanga, Bilyanina Yatanga. With respect to Ghana speakers uh, here present and with the approval I have previously been given by Ghana elders to use this acknowledgement, I have wished to say we acknowledge the Ghana people and their spiritual relationship with the land as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide region. We acknowledge their living culture, heritage and beliefs. We also acknowledge the Naranjeri, Ramanjeri, Anangu, Adnamatna, Naranga and Bangala people and any other peoples here today and welcome them to this meeting on Ghana land. May we walk together in harmony in a spirit of reconciliation. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much for inviting me to uh, give this address on the changing face of poverty. Uh, the changing face of poverty, of course, is, uh, can mean different sorts of things. First of all, it can include the changing profile of poverty, what poverty looks like uh, around the world and here in Australia. 
But it can also include changing perceptions of what we mean by that uh, very laden term, the poor. And I wish to address something of each of those topics, both from the perspective internationally, but also from the perspective of here within Australia. My overall thesis is that there have been, there have been amazing strides in poverty reduction globally, uh, but there remain serious new dark horizons ahead. And here in Australia, we have actually seen backward steps uh, in terms of poverty reduction. In other words, there has been some poverty increase in this country. And in addition to that, we have seen some retrograde views regarding the poor. Now, as Christopher mentioned, I had been with World Vision for 11 years. I was with Anglicare for four and a half years. Uh, and it was a great privilege to work with both those organisations that worked alongside communities both uh, overseas and here in this country. In addition to that, I am uh, now um, one of the goodwill ambassadors for the United Nations Association of Australia, and indeed my uh, ambassadorship, if you call it that, uh, is specifically for the issue of uh, sustainable development goals. And as Christopher mentioned, I have been at the national level uh, at one stage uh, co-chair or deputy chair of National Anti-Poverty Week for seven years until last year. Now, the, the issue of poverty has one, is one that has changed enormously over recent years. And perhaps one of the best ways to look at that would be to see what has happened by comparing two sets of targets that were set. Back in the year 2000, the 189 members of the United Nations uh, decided that they would set what were called the Millennium Development Goals. And these were a set of eight goals that were aimed to be achieved by 2015. Uh, I have to say there was a degree of cynicism at the time in 2000 about whether these goals were realistic, uh, whether they could be achieved, whether they would be achieved uh, in some areas and totally overlooked in other areas. In fact, the record was not that bad. The, uh, there were a number of significant improvements in the way uh, uh, poverty, in addressing poverty around the globe. For example, in goal one, eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. Um, in 1990, 10 years before the millennium started, 50% of the world lived on less than $1.25 a day. By 2015, that figure had fallen to 14%. Now, to put that another way, that really means that something close to a billion people had been lifted out of poverty and uh, over that period of time. And the number of people undernourished had dropped by nearly half. Now, I'm not going to go through each one of the, uh, the goals, all very important as they were, but just to pick out some particular highlight points to, to make the point of what achievements were, were done. So I now want to go to goal four, reduce child mortality. Now, I can remember how horrified I was when I first heard the figure in the mid-1980s that something like 48,000 children under the age of five die each day. And overwhelmingly, they're dying of preventable causes. Uh, or they were dying of preventable causes. That was a, a monstrous figure to, uh, to, to contemplate. In fact, by uh, 1990 already, that figure had been significantly reduced to 35,000. The situation now, in 2017, that it is down to something like 15,000 a day. Now, to put that in another way in terms of rates, in 1990, 93 of every 1,000 uh, live births would be dead before they were five. By 2017, that figure had dropped to 39 per 1,000 live births. And so in the next set of goals that I'll talk about in a moment, the Sustainable Development Goals, that figure of 39 per 1,000, a target has been set of 25 per 1,000 live births. To put it in another way, uh, to understand just what sort of progress we might be able to make on that, 117 of the 189 member states of the UN are in fact already there. 
And on current trend lines, a further 26 will achieve that goal by uh, 2030, which all sounds wonderful, and it is indeed wonderful. But to give you an idea of some, another aspect of the problem, which indicates uh, that there's still a lot to be done, in 2017, of those 5.4 million children under the age of five who died that year, mostly of preventable causes, the uh, half of that were in six countries. Those countries were China, India, Pakistan, uh, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Somalia, I think. The, uh, and of those, 45% would be dead within the 20, first 28 days of their life. Now, the major causes of those uh, deaths are uh, lack of nourishment, lack of nutrition, but a significant cause, a very significant cause, are waterborne diseases, uh, diarrhea particularly, and all the other forms of diseases uh, associated with that. So, goal number four, reduce child mortality, saw very, very significant, has seen very, very significant achievements. Goal number five, improve maternal health. From 1990, a decade before the millennium, to 2015, there had been a 45% reduction in the rate of maternal mortality. A huge figure. And partly that was assisted by a significant increase uh, in the countries of the South of the number of people able to assist at births. A figure of some 71% increase in those who were able to assist either as midwives or other medical uh, carers. <coughs> The next one I want to go to is goal number seven, ensuring environmental sustainability. I mentioned access to clean water. Between 1990 and 2015, there was a dramatic increase in the number of people who had access to clean, piped drinking water. That figure, in fact, went up from 1.9 billion to 4.2 billion. That was a huge increase in terms of access to clean water. And another aspect about environmental issues, during that same period of time, there was a 98%, a reduction of 98% of ozone-depleting substances um, in, in our atmosphere. Now, there are wonderful results that have been achieved. And as a result of that, when it came to 2015, there was a recognition by the United Nations that this was a valid proposition to go down this path. Maybe we should be looking at what should be the case for the next 15 years. Should we simply repeat those eight goals and set new targets for them, or do something a bit different? And this was the decision. What I call the Sustainable Development Goals. 17 of them. Now, you may say, does that simply mean there was supersizing going on? Uh, 8 to 17, inflation. Um, in fact, there were some very important issues built in to these 17 that were not in the initial 8. First of all, the initial uh, 8 were primarily involved with countries that would classically be regarded as less developed, countries of the South. There was not a challenge, really, to all countries of the globe. A recognition that issues not just of poverty, but of development generally and developmental deficits applied very often in, developing country, in developed countries, countries of the north, as we uh, call them, as well as countries of the south. And the second point was that while there was some recognition of uh, environmental concerns in the Millennium Development Goals, it was not a major headline item. And so in this set of goals, environmental uh, issues gained increasing prominence. And in terms of the changing face of poverty, that surely is a vitally important issue. Because if we manage to make improvements on certain goals with respect to poverty indicators, but in the same time have impoverished the globe, then they will be short-term gains that we have made. And I want to talk some more about that uh, a bit later on. 
Now, these goals uh, are uh, no poverty, the eradication of poverty. Now, of course, what we're talking about here is something that applies to a, a capacity to have a quality of life that is uh, well-nourished, that has access to uh, clean water, that is not going to be subject to diseases that uh, are the diseases of poverty. It doesn't take into account relative poverty. There is always the concept that somebody is poorer by some indicator than another person. So it's really talking about these absolute indicators of what is essential to be able to live uh, a life of reasonable quality. And that includes issues of zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, industry innovation and infrastructure, reduced inequalities, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, life on land, peace, justice and strong institutions, partnerships for the, uh, for the goals. Which all sounds wonderfully warm, all sounds wonderfully appropriate. But in fact, you need to drill down into all of them to see what is there. And I encourage you to go to uh, various UN websites to drill down into each of those to see the number of specific subcategories that apply to each one. Um, and you may say, well, some of them seem uh, uh, rather parenthood statements, uh, but they are, in fact, as important as the others. Issues, for example, of partnership always sounds good to talk about partnership, but the essential point is that these goals will not be achieved without collaboration, not just between governments, not just between governments and uh, INGOs, international non-government organizations and local non-government organizations, but civil society and people in general, in fact. Um, there are a number of them that have potential issues that will be very difficult in the years ahead. Sustainable cities and communities, uh, along with uh, decent, decent work and economic growth. How does one do that in a world where global, uh, globalization has both seen the benefits of it and the liabilities of it, the problems of it? Where there have been obvious uh, movements of jobs around the world uh, that have seen some communities better off and other communities worse off. And I'll talk a bit more about that a bit later. But the important point that I made a moment ago, that these goals are for all countries, not just targeted at countries of the South, brings us to the question of, well, how well is Australia doing on those goals? And it is to be said that uh, there are uh, monitoring processes taking place. The Senate itself has a committee that has uh, asked for these goals to be progress reported upon. And the reality is that Australia at the moment has uh, already achieved three of the goals. Number three, good health and well-being. Number six, clean water and sanitation. And number 11, sustainable cities and communities. Now, you may want to argue the point on some of that, but uh, in the broad aspect of the, the, the sub-characteristics of each one of those, uh, the goals set by the SDGs have been met by Australia. Um, the, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of the goals. Uh, there's some risk uh, implicit in whether we will achieve the goal. They include such things as no, uh, no poverty. Uh, another one is quality education. Another one is gender equality. Number eight, decent work and economic growth. There's also there's some doubt as to whether we'll achieve that. Number nine, industry and innovation and infrastructure. Number ten, reducing inequalities in our society. Number 12, responsible consumption and production. And number 16, peace, justice and strong institutions. But perhaps of more concern to us are the six that I have not named that are listed on current reports as of 2017 as being seriously far from achievement. And those that are seriously far from achievement are number two, zero hunger, in this country. Uh, number seven, affordable and clean energy. Number 13, climate action. Number 14, life below water. Number 15, life on the land. And number 17, partnerships for the goals. And that's really to do with the level of overseas development assistance. So the, the shortfalls uh, 
are these. In, in the zero hunger one, the, the, there is a category talking about sustainable nitrogen management index, and it appears on current progress that we're not on target to achieve the target there. But there is also that other aspect of uh, global food security. The other aspect in zero, uh, in zero hunger is the prevalence of adult obesity in this country, and that appears in the uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, in the in SDG 7, Affordable and Clean Energy, the issue of renewable uh, energy and final consumption and CO2 from fuels and electricity are listed as the areas that we are, look like we may well fail. Climate change, number 13, clearly CO2 emissions. We have uh, the proposition being made that since we only generate 1.5% of the world's emissions, uh, we're not going to make much difference. The reality is that if you add together all the countries that produce 1% to 1.5% of emissions, in total those countries add up to 40%. And so uh, if those each are going to get away with the argument of saying we can't make a difference, then suddenly 40% of the globe is out of the equation. Life below water, the, uh, we have uh, fishery stocks that in a number of cases are overexploited or collapsed. Um, life on land, this is the annual change in forest area, the decrease in forest area in the country. And the partnerships for goals the, is the overseas development assistance question. You know that in 1990, uh, 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 the 1990s, we had significant reductions in the level of uh, money being allocated by Australia to overseas development assistance. We actually went through a wonderful period from about 2003-04 through to about 2013, where there was real increases in overseas development assistance. Uh, we had year-on-year year under governments of both persuasions, I hasten to add. Uh, but unfortunately, since 2013, we've seen that figure cut back significantly and in some cases renamed as to what it is actually doing. So it can't really meet the classification of true overseas development assistance. Now, there's another issue that needs to be taken into account in terms of how these development goals are met, and that is that what is the changing environment of the way in which the, the poor live in, in different parts uh, of the world? Will we achieve these goals by 2030? Well, I've just indicated to you that uh, there look promising opportunities for the globe in some of them, but in others, they're uncertain. Well, before I want to talk about uh, one of the ways in which development work best takes place in terms of working with poor communities, I want to raise with you another issue that will potentially be a significant factor in how well or not well we address the issue of poverty reduction around the globe. And that is the question of the poor, where do they live? We have the phrase dirt poor. And dirt poor, I guess, takes its phrase from the fact that people who live subsistence living are about as poor as you can get. Uh, and so that has entered the language. And the truth of the matter is that in many times of history, those who were the poorest, by various indicators, were those on the land. But the poor are taking their poverty with them to the cities in increasing numbers. Indeed, at a time when we spend so much of our energy concerned about uh, uh, unauthorized, is the correct term, arrivals uh, in our country, uh, and the movement of unauthorized people around the globe, which varies from year to year between half a million and a million, depending on the circumstances that are taking place. One million people a week are deciding they cannot continue in the countryside of the south and are moving to cities. One million people a week. The result of that is that in, by ni in 1990, 30% of the, the world was urbanized. By 2025, it will be 60% of the world will be urbanized. There are significant issues here for uh, poverty reduction. But first of all, let me go on a, bit, a little bit about just how significant these figures are. In 1900, the top 10 cities on the globe had a combined population of 26 million. 
Of course, the whole world population was much smaller. The, indeed, the global population was only 1.6 billion at the time. Therefore, something like 1 in 70 people lived in the top 10 largest cities of the world, topped by London at 6.5 million. Uh, all of these cities were European or North American, except for Tokyo being in that number 10. By the year 2000, the top 10 cities had a population of 170 million. That was uh, a figure of something like one in uh, 37 people in the globe lived in one of the top 10 cities in the world. They were topped by Mexico City at 26.3 million, uh, and the smallest of those uh, um, uh, top 10 were Rio and New Delhi with only 13 million people each. Now, whereas the, in 1900, the top 10 had been all in North America or Europe, bar one, by the year 2000, um, three were in Latin America, six in Asia, and only one was in Europe or North America, and that was New York. Now, what will be the situation in 2100? Well, I've been looking at various research on this matter, and I hasten to add that they probably should be considered somewhat Malthusian in their projections, because I think uh, there's going to be a, a number of factors that are going to change, uh, hopefully for the better. Um, but these are the on current projections of movements in the various parts of the world. It is estimated that by the year 2100, the top 10 cities of the globe when the globe will have a population of 11.2 billion on current projections, the top 10 cities will have a population of 640 million people. Um, in other words, uh, something like one in 18 people in the globe will live in 10 cities on the globe. The largest will be Lagos with 88 million, and Lagos was a city of 500,000 people in 1955. It's now a city of 15 million, and uh, it is growing very rapidly. The smallest of the top 10 in that year, according to these predictions, will be Kabul on 50 million people. Now, when we say they live in these cities, they live in these cities in, uh, uh, in very poor circumstances. These megalopolises become largely slum cities. And so in 2012, UN Habitat reported that 863 million people on the globe lived in what could be categorised as slums. That was 33% of the urban population. The good news is that that was actually a percentage reduction on 1990, when 40% had lived in slums. The bad news is that in absolute numbers it's still an increase. It was an increase from 650 million in 1990 to 863 million now. The slums of one city alone, Mumbai, exceed the combined populations of Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. Those three cities, if you put them together, equal the slums of Mumbai. Now, one needs to qualify the comment about uh, slums. The, the, the slums may indeed play an important part in transitioning economies. And there are situations where slums can be very creative places. Uh, and uh, uh, there seems to be a genuine movement through slums, into slums from the countryside, and people leaving from slums. Uh, and, uh, and there have been various research papers done on that matter. That doesn't mean it isn't grinding poverty for a huge number of people. But there is a greater volatility in slums than is sometimes given credit for. However, there is a major issue in terms of the status of life, food security, and water quality. Inevitably, these are not the places that have uh, water piped to them. These are not the places that have good food security. Now, there are, again, some qualifying differences here. If you go to the, uh, uh, the slums of Cape Town, Kailicha uh, in Cape Town, this has been some very innovative work done to deliver water and power to uh, uh, slum settlements, not the, um, the old government housing estates outside Cape Town, but these slum settlements where water stands are provided every so often so that people can get access to clean water, for example. But broadly speaking, there is a major food security problem. I mentioned 
just how the world has been urbanizing. The reality over history has been that urbanization might bring more security very often historically, might bring more economic capacity at the macro level, but inevitably it brings less well-being at the micro level, less well-being at the individual level. It's one of the uh, things that historians have been somewhat bemused by when they dig up uh, Roman sarcophagi uh, to note that uh, Romans were a much shorter people than they expected, these people who ruled so much of the, uh, the European world at the time. Uh, but then they put it down to the fact, well, maybe all people were short at that time. The reality is that Romans in the first and second centuries of the Common Era were shorter than their predecessors had been three centuries earlier. Uh, and that was largely because of an urbanizing effect. When people left the countryside, they became less well-nourished when they went to the cities. We noticed the same phenomenon happened in the Industrial Revolution. The people of the Industrial Revolution were less well-nourished in the factory cities of UK than they had been in the countryside uh, of, of the UK. And that really shouldn't be altogether surprising because the logistics of getting large volumes of food uh, where previously they had been growing it in their own areas, now you actually had to provide for the transport of that food and the alteration of that food so that it could be transported easily enough and taken to the, uh, the cities and then uh, processed and then processed in a way that would be cheap enough for those living on low incomes to be able to afford. And the big boost of the Industrial Revolution was based upon low incomes, so therefore you had to have low food prices. And low food prices were often not just achieved by economies of scale, because they were difficult to achieve in many cases, they were achieved by such things as adulteration of food. And there have been uh, a colleague of mine who I um, studied with in, in Spain has done a thesis on adulteration in food in, in England during the Industrial Revolution and uh, highlighting just how dramatic that was. And therefore, the quality of nutrition that people was getting was much, much lower than they had previously got in the countryside. So, general indicators of well-being went down. Their stature went down. They had less uh, physical well-being than before. Now, there is a real irony here, because one of the reasons why the urbanization takes place, is certainly the current urbanization takes place, is that we need less people in the countryside to produce food around the globe. So there simply aren't the jobs there for them anymore. We see that phenomenon here in Australia, as farm sizes on a peninsula, which uh, 50 years ago you might have a farm of 1,000 hectares, now you wouldn't get away with one less than 10,000 hectares, with virtually the same number of people needed to, uh, to work on that farm. So that's been happening all over the globe. So there has been a shedding of labour in the rural areas as this economy of scale builds up. And yields have improved dramatically. And so you would say this should mean food prices could be very much cheaper. Well, that certainly is true in many ways. But the logistical issues of getting the amount of food needed to the people that are living in these slum conditions uh, is, is certainly very difficult indeed. But to highlight the irony of this, I mentioned that by the year 2100, current indications suggest that our global population will be 11.9 billion people. That's a lot of people. We may fear, as Thomas Malthus, Malthus feared in the 18th century, that that will be too many people for what we can feed. Well, the truth is that our productive capacity in food right now produces enough food to feed 12 billion people. And while we have seen dramatic reductions in the rate of uh, malnourishment, as I, I quoted some figures at the start, that 12 billion worth of food is not all getting where it should get. Uh, a lot of it is getting to the plate, and we're eating it. Some are getting more than their fair share, like us. And some of us are eating more than our fair share. And the very fact that one of our global, uh, one of our sustainable development targets that we're not doing well on is obesity is a proof of the fact that some are eating more than their fair share of the 12 billion meals worth. Um, of course, uh, uh, 
rats and mice and other vermin are getting a lot of it too, because that's a huge amount of uh, food to be stored. Then there's the issue of waste, we, what we don't finish on our plate, or what we don't finish in our fridge and throw out when it's reached the use-by date. Um, that takes up a huge amount of the, the food that we produce. And then finally, in a particular irony, uh, something like uh, two billion meals worth of that food is uh, consumed not by people, but by vehicles. It has been con well, uh, converted into fuels that uh, seem to be more environmentally friendly. But I just highlight the point that we already produce enough food to feed that many, uh, that many people. Now, I want to, uh, in a moment, I want to come back to some environmental issues, but I also want to get on to some local poverty issues. I mentioned at the start that there have been very impressive improvements on global poverty indicators, but that Australia's own record may not be quite so, uh, so promising. If you have the chance to have a look at a book, Battler and Billionaires, The Story of Inequality in Australia, written by the uh, Assistant Shadow Treasurer, Andrew Lee. He wrote this book in 2013. He has done a very good study of inequality in this country over the last 200 years. And he highlights the fact that there were periods of, uh, of, of low levels of disparity, and then that went up. And so in the 19, uh, early 1900s, uh, we had growing levels of disparity between those at the top end and those at the bottom end. And then finally, by uh, the 1940s, it went the other way. And the 1950s, 60s, and 70s were the premium period for the minimal level of inequality between the top of the scale and the bottom of the scale in this country. Uh, in fact, the figures um, are these. Uh, from the he, he says, from the 1920s to the 1970s, incomes rose faster at the bottom than at the top, and wealth came to be more equally distributed. Moguls were scarce, as one social commentator noted of the 1960s. The wealth feel under some pressure to be accepted by ordinary working Australians rather than the other way round. By the end of the 1970s, Australia was one of the most equal countries in the world. Over the past generation, this has slowly unraveled, he writes. Since the mid-1970s, real earnings for the bottom tenth, the bottom tenth, have grown 15%, while earnings for the top tenth have grown 59%. In recent decades, the top 1% income share has doubled, and the wealth share of the top 0.001% has more than tripled. Australia is not, he says, as unequal as the United States or many countries in Latin America, but our current level of inequality places us in the top third of the OECD. Our current level of inequality places us in the top third of the OECD. Now, an interesting point he makes as to why he feels there has been this change is that he says the, the drive towards a, uh, a less disparate society all those years was really based upon our ethos of egalitarianism. And he argues that some of that ethos of egalitarianism has uh, dissipated in recent decades. And he says it's dissipated at government level as well. And here I come to an issue which I think is germane to the consideration of how we deal with those who live in poverty, and that is the government response. Government responses of both persuasions have had, uh, and I'm one of those people who have been part of that, uh, had uh, policies and so on designed to assist those who were disadvantaged in our society. And yet there has been a tendency to the depersonalising of those who live in poverty in our country and certainly taking away some of their authority. Lou Wilson, who wrote a chapter called Social Inclusion, in the state of South Australia from crisis to prosperity, question mark, that was edited by John Spear. This was done in 2009. He makes the argument that social inclusion is a today word, a today speak word. It's a warm word. We, none of us will argue against social inclusion. We all want social inclusion. 
But he then goes to unpack the way that has been interpreted. And let me read some of the uh, comments that he makes. Social inclusion in this sense is about positioning social disadvantage as a process of moral hazard, which removes the necessity for a commitment to redistributive justice. Redistributive justice is difficult to implement without offending powerful interest groups. But saving recalcitrant individuals from themselves is a different matter. Such a process can also be understood as taking the high moral ground. Now, essentially what he's saying is, often the victims of circumstance that see them labelled as being in poverty or the poor are often blamed for their circumstance and are then told that they will be helped whether they want to be helped or not. That policies will be introduced that will be done for their own good. Now, one of the things I wish I had known when I was in government, and I think we did many good things in terms of social justice issues, I hasten to add, uh, we had a policy meeting the, the social uh, uh, agenda um, that was issued by Susan Lenhan back in 1993, and it was an excellent policy and I think still stands the test of time. But one of the things I wish I'd known is what I discovered when I ended up working with World Vision, working with poor communities, about ways in which poverty reduction could most effectively be achieved. And that was that those communities were essentially communities that had the mandate of authority as to whether they would let you work with them. So that we couldn't just, as World Vision, go into a community and say, we're here to help you, just let us get on with our business, that's our job, we do that well. We have all these track records of people we've taken out of poverty, so uh, just let us get on with it, you just stand on the side and watch and do, do as you're told. Uh, that would never have worked, and nor should it ever have worked. And it couldn't even have been insisted upon by World Vision because we had no mandate other than the mandate they would give us. So the relationship was one between the agency, and this is not just World Vision, this is all these international agencies that do wonderful work in the field. None of them had a mandate of their own other than that ceded to them by the community, and inevitably that was only ever ceded as a cooperative basis. You do this in partnership with us or not at all. Yet, in this country, the relationship between agencies, and I used to work for Anglicare, wonderful people doing wonderful things, but the relationship was a bit more complicated than this. The relationship was, where was the mandate? The mandate was not actually in the hands of those who needed the help. The mandate was in the hands of governments who paid the money to the agencies to do the work, and then the agency said, you're my boss, so I listen to what you want to have happen as I then go and work for community rather than with community. Now, that's saying it rather boldly and, and not very fairly in many ways. But I sometimes wonder what might have happened had the whole policy of dealing with circum, uh, social uh, economic inequality in this country had been addressed in a way where the communities themselves were invited to be part of that process much more uh, than they actually have been. And I'll leave that with you for something uh, to ponder. Lou Wilson finishes his chapter on this subject with this rather chilling statement. When I started reading the chapter some years ago, social inclusion, oh, this is going to be nice and warm. This is how he finishes the chapter. We might all hope that at some time in the future, social inclusion policies that work assertively will not be applied to us. Now... back in order again here. The issue of, uh, uh, so poverty in this country, I think we have these issues of uh, inequality that are growing. Uh, we need to work out how we're going to address those policies in respectful and empowering ways of community rather than ways that simply make those that are, are suffering such circumstance the victims uh, to, be, to be blamed for the situation. But all of these things are going to be of little value if we don't address the question of an impoverished earth. Agencies like World Vision and CARE and Save the Children and Oxfam and Caritas 
when they worked in the 1970s and 80s with communities, uh, knew that the thing to be done was poverty reduction. And that was the important issue. But sometimes, looking back on it, they failed to address the question of sustainability. So some of the things that were being done were not really in the long term environmentally sustainable. They gave short term benefits, but not long term sustainability. And so the reason the Sustainable Development Goals are called that is that they need to be sustainable. We need to be able to say that the things that will be achieved under those goals will still be possible at the end of the century and beyond. And yet, we have a different set of circumstances that may face us. You may remember that amazing woman, Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was a former Prime Minister of Norway. Well, in 1987, she chaired a commission that wrote a report, Our Common Future. And that report uh, said that the development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generation to meet their own needs is the important stake at hand. You know, we can see how that's played out uh, as we see uh, so much deforestation around the globe. At one level of analysis, that deforestation has enabled simple development to take place for many people who otherwise would have starved. And so it is somewhat uh, uh, arrogant of us in our comfortable zone to make criticism of people who do things simply to stay alive. Do we have the mechanisms in place to see that they don't have to do things that are environmentally damaging in order to stay alive? Well, let me give you some figures that uh, may just tell us the magnitude of the kind of problem that we have. Um, the latest issue of Mianjin magazine has an article by uh, Jane Rawson. Uh, I encourage you to have a read of that. And she quotes uh, some very interesting figures on our impact on the planet. She quotes, for example, Vaclav Smil, whose uh, 2013 book, Harvesting the Biosphere, What We Have Taken from Nature, just shows how much we have already impacted the planet. He had written that the, if, you, if you were to have everybody weighed, the animals weighed and the wild animals, if they could just not be wild for a minute and allow themselves to sit on a scale, uh, what would be the, the relative weight of each group? He found that 32% uh, of that total biomass of uh, animals would be human beings. 65% would be domesticated animals. 3% would be wild animals. That just shows the level in which we have already dominated the planet. And there are figures she quotes from the World Wildlife Fund that estimates that there are as many, as half as many individual non-human animals, in terms of wild animals, as there were 40 years ago. And at the same time, the human population or she refers to it, the human vertebrate population, they're somewhat reduced to a category here, uh, doubled in that time. Uh, this, is a this is a phrase, this is something she says about that. Lose an Irrawaddy dolphin, get a human. Lose a mountain pygmy possum, get a human. Lose a Siberian tiger, get a human. Lose a kakapo, get a human. Lose a forest elephant, get a human. Lose a Philippine eagle, and so on. And... Uh, to put some more figures, so this time from the World Wildlife Fund Living Planet Report, there are a billion fewer birds inhabiting North America today compared to 40 years ago. Now, I was 29 40 years ago. You know, I, I, when I hear these things 40 years ago, oh, that sounds a long time ago. It's not. It's well and truly within my lifetime and my adult lifetime. And uh, to hear figures like that is, is, is to me, deeply concerning. Um, in Germany, flying insects, and we can't blame Mr. Uh, the, uh, Louis the Fly for this, um, flying insects have declined by 76% over the past 27 years. When you think about all the issues of pollination and so on, almost half of Borneo's orangutans died or were removed between 1999 and 2015, and elephant numbers have dropped 62% in a decade, with on average one adult killed by poachers every 15 minutes. 
which means there's been three dead in the time I've spoken. What's the point of this in terms of poverty reduction? Well, the reality is that a lot of this cutting edge in terms of where humanity meets wildlife is at the poor end of the world. And unless something can be done to help poverty eradication that doesn't require these sorts of impacts on our uh, wildlife, then it will go on happening. But it also is to highlight the point that uh, if, if, if we see such damage taking place, we do not have environmental sustainability of, uh, being offered for the whole planet. Nature in 2016 looked at various threats to threatened species and found that more than 5,400 species are on the brink thanks to farming. Crops pushing 4,600 out of their homes, livestock farming affecting 2,500. And oddly enough, climate change only affecting about 1,700 species. That's the impact of our growing consumption needs. There are other issues. Our growing disposal needs. I mentioned in a sermon I gave in St. Peter's Cathedral a few weeks ago, the plastic issue. And you will have doubtless have seen these figures as well. If you add uh, together all the biomass of fish in the sea and the biomass, not the biomass, the mass of plastic in the sea, on current predictions of the way in which we are disposing of plastic, by 2050, the plastic in the sea will weigh as much as the fish in the sea. More significantly, the infusion of microplastic particles particularly into shellfish, but also into many uh, other uh, species of fish, will be of such a level that many fish will not be able to be eaten by people. And so attempts to reduce uh, nutritional problems will just not be available anymore. I want to leave some time for questions. So the point I come back to is what I started with, and that is that my overall thesis is that there have been amazing strides in poverty reduction globally, and I've quoted some of those figures. But there remain serious new dark horizons ahead. If we don't address these issues, then these sustainable development goals will not prove themselves sustainable. And then in terms of Australia, here in Australia, we have seen some backward issues in terms of growing inequality in our society, and Andrew Lee's proposition is that's because we are abandoning the egalitarian ethos that is so, has historically been so fundamental to us, and also perhaps resulting in us changing the way in which we see those who we might label the poor. And so as we look at this anti-poverty week, poverty is changing its face. It's changing the face of those who are but it's also changing the way it might impact upon us and the issues that we have to address. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much for that uh, fascinating talk. I just got a couple of questions in relation to the 17 yep. development goals. First of all, wouldn't no, one, no policy yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that comes under um, sustainable cities, uh, for example, um, would be where that issue really appears. I mean, a lot of these clearly overlap with each other. Uh, and I mentioned the fact that obesity appears under zero hunger. Well, you'd have to say that's zero hunger, but why is it being put there? Um, there's always a bit of arbitrariness to some of these uh, categorizations. The no poverty issue does not automatically imply, by the way, zero hunger. Um, you might actually have enough money in a community, but food security might not be delivering nutrition. And can I just spend a little bit of time talking about an issue that came up when I was based in Asia with World Vision, and it was really quite interesting. Uh, we had two communities that were paddy-growing, rice-growing communities in Cambodia. And one of them, oh, they both, according to the indicators of how we measure food security, they both were producing sufficient uh, uh, rice, 
to meet the, 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 the indicator that they had food security. What was a bit odd was that one of the communities was showing nutritional deficits. Uh, why was that so? We couldn't follow that until our researchers went and studied very closely just by obs observation what was taking place. And they noticed that uh, in one community, when the, when the women, basically it was the women who were doing the planting of the rice, were planting the rice, they would be bending down planting the rice, and every so often their hand would go into a little bag at their side. And it was just every so often. You couldn't work out what was going on. They pursued it a bit further. What was actually happening is that while they were planting the rice, they were seeing little shrimps, and they were putting the shrimps in their bag. They were then going back uh, home to, to make dinner for the family, and the shrimps would be added to the water that the rice was cooked in, and it was providing protein that the other village wasn't happening. And it actually changed the way we looked at the issue. Of that one example changed the way we started to look at food security. So that you might, at one level, have no poverty because they had apparent food security, but we actually had hunger still taking place uh, in, in one and not the other. Yes. I personally think you're spot on. Uh, this whole issue of growth needs to be defined. What do we mean by growth? Uh, do we simply mean increased consumption, uh, or do we simply mean improvement in the quality of life, a, a growing quality of life? The growing quality of life does not automatically need increased consumption. And uh, technological innovation has already given us many examples where we can consume less than, uh, than we did previously. And some of the examples uh, don't really fit uh, all that well, perhaps. But it's certainly true that cars today consume much less fossil fuel to get from point A to point B than they did 30 years ago. Um, now, we want them to all change from that e even as well. But So the issue of growth is we need to break away from what has been, the, uh, in my view, the, uh, uh, the addiction to growth at any cost, that growth is the indicator of well-being without defining what we mean by growth. And if growth is simply increased consumption, then that is going to lead us to that impoverishment of the globe. Uh, if we only have 3% wild animals left, how are we possibly going to have even them? How are we going to be able to save them by the end of the century? So yes, I, I take your point. And it's one of the points I've raised when we have debates about this in, in various fora. Uh, with the UN Association. Yes? In my opinion, <clears throat> one of the big um, causes of these, um, of the failure of these goals in some countries is systemic government corruption, mm -hmm. um, which means exploitation of the people. Mm -hmm. And which doesn't really depend on, on your listing or. Oh, well. Peace, justice, and strong institutions, that strong civil society. Uh, and, you know, the, the reality is the, the Millennium Development Goals, I gave a good report card uh, on, uh, I could have given it on all of them, but if you'd have broken it down into regions and countries, uh, some of them were not showing up well. Uh, some of those countries were not going forward. They were going backwards. And, and therefore, some of them, if you went, went to analyse the issues, were because of lack of... Uh, good institutions in their country. And, and, and that's quite right. As we, if we fast forward to 2030 uh, and look back and see what the scorecard will be at that point, there will be some that will not show well. Uh, and inevitably, I would argue that they're the ones that do not have good civil society. So, yeah, fair point. 
Yes. Also with the issue of forceful interventions, could it be argued that the stolen generations were a form of forceful intervention by Dugan's or perhaps more recently the Howard intervention? Absolutely. That all the cashless cards, uh, you know, that we know better than you what yeah. you should spend the money yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Right. Do we need, uh, um, how can we persuade the governments to take a more, um, a less heavy handed approach to this? Well, I, those, are, those are three examples that automatically come to mind, uh, but the, the, there's, a, there's a number of others. Uh, we, uh, do you know that the, the number of children that can't stay with their natural-born families is growing in this country by 3,000 a year? Uh, and, uh, is this due to family violence? Well, 40% of those are caused by neglect. And the balance of 60% are caused by various other problems, including domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse, and so on. Now, nobody wants to leave kids in vulnerable situations. But where has the energy been put into working with communities, for example, with those cases of neglect? Uh, how, how can that be addressed rather than simply removing kids? Now, you don't leave kids in vulnerability, I know. But where are the policies put in place to start doing some firewalling before these things become like that. Anyway, um, so but, but your point's correct because it makes an assumption that those communities could not do it by themselves, which also makes the assumption they can't even do it with us, therefore we will do it for them. So there's a double logic problem happening there. Uh, if the, at the very least, if they'd have sat down with those communities and I'm pretty certain that if they'd have done that, they would not have had the communities agree to their children being taken. Um, I think the stories people are doing this better. Mm -hmm. Are there good examples of people doing it well? Yes, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes? Uh, in Australia, there's a, a great problem with underemployment mm -hmm. and with uh, average working people living in poverty. Uh, is there any possible way of um, Big question. Uh, it, well, some of you in this room are of my age. Most of you are much younger. The, uh, but I remember back watching Disney programs in the 1950s, and they used to have uh, one program that was on Tomorrowland. And one thing that really stood out to me at the time was the Tomorrowland program that talked about the future with all the innovation that was going to come into place, this is the 50s they're talking about this, and all the technology that was going to be, machines doing all the work, and we were going to have so much leisure time, we were all going to be working six hours a week. And, uh, uh, and, and so how, what a wonderful world this would be. We'd have all this time to do what we wanted to do uh, in life. Well, the reality didn't quite work out quite like that, but it's certainly true that if you divided up all the work available amongst the people available to do it. It might not be six hours a week, but it certainly would be a lot less than it used to be because of the impact of things like uh, technology. But we've not worked out a way in which we distribute that, uh, that we give a, a reasonable go to everybody from the opportunities. Now, it's a problematic area, and, and Disney wasn't going to go into this uh, deep economic uh, 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 thought, uh, just simply held up the beacon. Um, but people like Tim Dunlop, uh, his book, Why the Future is Workless, uh, has attempted to try and look at how that could happen. Now, I, I, I agree that that's going to need a, a lot of discussion in this country. He raises, it's not his idea, he, he echoes the idea that's been used overseas of the universal basic income. Uh, can we go down that sort of path to actually see that uh, people change the way they look at their working lives as being one where they need not be in full-time work all the time, and that at some points there is a basic income that everybody gets regardless. Uh, now, there's a lot of issues how that would be implemented, but somehow or other, unless we address this question, uh, it, it, whether or not it becomes a problem just for us, but it's more a global problem as well, um, the, we're going to end up with disparities. Okay, any other questions? Um, yeah. Well, this is sort of a provocative question, I suppose, but it seems a lot of these issues are linked to our current economic paradigm, like the material growth mm -hmm. rather than cultural growth. Uh, do, do these people have a positive vision of what our uh, new economic paradigm is doing? 
Well, uh, well, the people who are promoting these yes. uh, SDGs, they were passed by the United Nations, the 189 countries of the United Nations. Um, I can't unpack the motivations of a lot of countries who voted for them, uh, especially uh, the fact that, uh, as was mentioned, not all these countries are free of corruption. Um, and, and so I can't unpack all that. But the reality is that I think they saw that some pretty basic stuff could be done in the Millennium Development Goals that, whatever the case, resulted in good results for most people in most countries. And that, therefore, it was worth the effort to try and set these goals for the future. The target task, then, rather, is that there be auditing mechanisms, not just globally, but within countries. Now, some countries, those auditing mechanisms are not going to be all that easy to do. I wouldn't want to be part of an auditing process in some governance systems. But in our country, we do have uh, this. And so th this is telling us that, yeah, Australia, you know, we have some things to be pleased about, but a lot of things that we're not yet ready to, to tick the box on. Um, and, uh, and so it's not just going to be governments that are going to preside over this as much as they might like it to be just governments. It needs to be civil society is goading them along the way. And the United Nations Association, uh, of which I am the goodwill ambassador for this, uh, is really an association targeted not at government, but targeted at community, to engage community in this whole process. So, in fact, this week, in Anti-Poverty Week, a number of us is, are speaking in different parts of the country about these goals. Okay? That's right. Ah, yes. <laughs> That's right. I should have switched it off. <laughs> <laughs> then, on behalf of the uh, Australian Institute of Technology, uh, Institute of Technology, <laughs> the, on, on behalf of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, we'd like to thank you for coming and giving this fascinating talk on the changing faces of poverty mm. and its uh, complexities and interdependencies, and highlighting those and how. Um, you know, to, that we're required to address some of these issues. And I think one of the things that I take away from it is that whilst we've made some achievements and progress, that uh, it has increased our awareness that there is a lot more to be done, but whatever's done to address these issues needs to be sustainable. Hmm. So thank, could you like to join me in thanking you? <laughs> Thank you, everybody.